Hello again, I'm Phil Lawler for the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture at Thomas More College in New Hampshire, and continuing my series of talks with authors of recently published book. With us today is Joshua Mitchell. He is a political theory professor at Georgetown University and the author most recently of American Awakening, Identity, Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time. Joshua Mitchell, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure, Phil, thank you for having me. Let me, um, let me start you off with a question I'm going to quote from your preface. We say, Americans have not lost their religion. Americans have relocated their religion to the realm of politics. Could you expand on that? Yes, uh, I'm a political theorist and I, I taught history of Western political thought for 40 years and I teach Plato up to the present day. But I'm also a student of American politics. And um, what has struck me increasingly over the last decade or two is that uh, religious, the religious category of, of transgression and innocence has migrated. Uh, and the immediate cause I trace this to is the collapse of the mainline churches. And, and one could also add, I think, the softening of, of the Roman Catholic Church. And by that, I mean, in both cases, that the idea of the brokenness of man, the sinfulness of man, um, has slowly been replaced. Uh, and having lost sight of that, one would suspect that the idea of the brokenness of man would disappear, but it, it isn't. It hasn't disappeared and it won't disappear. Uh, and what has happened instead is that a whole new generation of people have found kind of moral economy on the basis of which they can think through innocence and transgression that has nothing to do with the church anymore. And it's called identity politics. And so what we have today in America is what I call a new great awakening fake one, of course, but uh, a, a search to figure out where one stands with respect to stain and transgression, but it has nothing to do with the church anymore. It has to do with the kind of identity group you are a member of and are forced to be a member of, I should add, and what your relationship is to other identity groups. And so the great question is how many identity guilt points do you have, whether they're guilt or innocence points, and as I say in the book, at the top of the ladder right now, or the bottom of the ladder, depending on how you look at it, is the white heterosexual male. We should probably add Christian. Um, and so he's what I call the prime transgressor. And, and everybody else is establishing their innocence vis-a-vis -vis him. And I, my view is this is a profound distortion of Christianity. So whether you're Protestant or Catholic, you will admit that Christ came into the world to take away the sins of the world. Uh, and so the Christian understanding is that man is broken, though created in the image of God, and Protestants and Catholics are going to disagree, but that's fine, but, but at least they agree on that, both those things happen. Um, and, uh, and as a consequence, as Athanasius wrote a long time ago in On the Incarnation, um, God sent his son to, to take away, pay for a debt, pay a ransom that man could not pay by virtue of his transgression. So that's the Christian understanding. And that means that we're all culpable in some way. 
But that's not what identity politics does. It, it returns us strangely to the first words Adam and Eve utter in chapter three of Genesis. I am innocent. It's those other ones. It's somebody else who's responsible. And so it's not that we've moved away from Christianity. It's we've moved away from the Christian insight and go, gone back to the Adamic insight, which is we're all innocent or some of us are innocent. Somebody else is at fault. And that's where we stand right now. It's a desperate attempt, whether through woke culture or what is called virtue signaling, but it's actually innocence signaling, uh, to demonstrate that we are innocent and those others are guilty. Right. And you can't, you can't have a politics when you've got these theological categories floating around. Yeah, you, you explain in the book, actually, that this is in some ways like a regression to a primitive system where we have a scapegoat because my life is not perfect. So it must be somebody's fault and it can't be my fault. Yeah. So there must be those people out there that need to be identified and it's their fault yes. and they can be blamed for everything. Yeah. So, I, so we can talk about this in terms of what Adam and Eve said in the garden of Eden there, but we can also, apropos your comment just now, we can go in a slightly different direction, which is consonant with it. And we can note that what paganism did was that it identified a scapegoat. It was generally people of that other nation. And so you would have these horrendous wars where you scapegoated and purged other nations, you know, burned the fields, slaughtered the older men, enslaved the women and the children. It's stuff that from a Christian just war perspective is just unthinkable. But it's it was it's the venting of cathartic rage on a scapegoat with the hope that in so doing you purification, your purity can be restored. That's the pagan understanding. And the Christian revolution, or the biblical revolution, was to say the problem of man's brokenness is sufficiently deep that it can't be solved by scapegoating another person. That in point of fact, it's only Christ who can take away the sins of the world. And now to come back to just war theory, that's why you can have a just war theory in Christianity. You can't have war as cathartic rage if it wasn't paganism. Once you've seen that you can't solve your problem through cathartic rage, then you can have a just war theory, which is what Augustine gives us in the early 400s. So, so we move then from paganism to Christianity, where we're able for a time and not completely ever to suspend this cathartic rage at other groups. Of course, it's, it interpenetrates even to this current day, and racism could be seen as that, by the way. Uh, but nevertheless, there's a Christian claim and hope that we can move beyond cathartic rage because we recognize that the problem of the brokenness of man is sufficiently deep that only God can solve it. And that would be wonderful, except that we seem to be moving out of that, and I think it's momentary, but, but we move, seem to be moving out of that. And the secularist will say, well, once there was Christianity and now we're moving into a secular age, and I'm not alone in saying that that's not how it works. What happens is when you, when, you, uh, when you weaken the Christian substance that sat on top of these deeper, more malignant impulses that are in scapegoating culture, when you weaken the, the overlying substance of Christianity, you return to the original condition, so to speak. And the original condition is not the innocence of man in the state of nature, as Rousseau said. It is the, the condition of paganism where you're searching to find an object on which you can vent cathartic rage so that you can be pure. And that's what cancel culture is. It's a scapegoating mechanism 
by which you identify specific individuals or specific groups in the belief, mistaken, I believe, that if you can just get rid of them, all the problems of the world will disappear. So I say in the book, and I'm, I'm more than half serious about this, if you look at all the major Democratic Party action items, whether it's criticism of the nation state and borders, whether it's criticism of capitalism and fossil fuels, um, whether it's criticism of the family of the church, I mean, really what's being said here is all of those, all those developments in those institutions are the outworkings of what the sinful creature, the white heterosexual male wrought. And so in order to, to return to purity, we have to purge the white heterosexual male and all those things like Westphalia, capitalism, the, the patriarchal family, we have to get rid of all those things. And so the hope is that through purging, we can retain, we can return to purity. And that really, all those projects are Democratic Party projects. And it's really about getting rid of, you know, what this evil creature, the white man brought. But the Christian claim is, go ahead, see how that works. You can get rid of one group after another, and you will still go to sleep at night knowing that there's something broken in you. And my concern is I don't know how, how long we're going to do this. First, it's gonna be the white heterosexual male. Then there's already evidence that it's the, it's the white female, the Karen memes you might have seen. And then I think, I think it's the black heterosexual male who believes in the family and the church. And there are many black conservative men who are already being targeted mm -hmm. uh, as being kind of out of date with the new woke movement. So it just gets, it goes from one group after another. And I'm, as you can imagine, I'm hardly interested in supporting defending the white heterosexual male. I'm just saying it's in, identity politics invests more in him than is there. He's, he's struggling like the rest of the world to, to figure out where he or she stands. So, um, so that's, that's the problem in a nutshell. And I, I don't think it's gonna be solved by politics. I think only, excuse me, a revival, the Christian insight about the brokenness of man and, and, and what Christ offers and through the church offers is going to save us from this malignancy. Yes, well, you, you made the point about uh, just war theory being something that only occurs in the context of uh, Christian understanding. And there's something similar to be said, isn't there for uh, domestic politics that with, unless there's some common understanding, some common base of discussion, uh, politics is impossible. It's yes, so one, one of the problems I've noticed in the last year, and I've written about it, it shows up a bit in the second part of American Awakening, <clears throat> is what I call this, this uh, co-relationship between globalism and, um, and selfie man, as I call it in some places. And what I mean by this is that after 1989, for partly because of, of the fall of the Soviet Union and partly because of advents and advances in technology, um, you get this strange kind of bimodal existence that so many people have, where on the one hand, they're cosmopolitan universalists who are utterly homeless uh, and on the other hand, they, they dwell, in, dwell on Facebook and social media and take selfies of themselves. So, so the self is in a way bimodal. It's, it's cosmopolitan outside of time and then and very highly localized. So what's missing? What's missing 
is the national community. And if, if that's missing, then you can walk down the street uh, and you can say and believe all sorts of horrendous things about people. And you will say and believe all sorts of horrendous things about people. There must be something like a community, a nation, um, which, which allows and insists that you look at that person who you might otherwise not like and say, but they're fellow citizens. But if you live in this configuration of globalism and selfie man, you are, you're completely delinked and alone. You have no connections to other people. And that phenomenon gives rise to both globalism and selfie man. So it gives rise to globalism because there's nothing we can do. We have to hand everything over to the global managers. We have no concrete links to our neighbors and to our friends and family. And then selfie man emerges in this for the same reason too, because if we're completely delinked and alone, then we're just sovereign selves without any connection to others. So when you break, I'm sounding like Tocqueville here, if you break the links between persons, then eventually you produce this binomial arrangement of globalism and selfie man. And under those circumstances, you don't have to temper your words with other people because you, you are not in community with them. And I think part of our challenge here is to understand that that binomial configuration is, may promise much, but it's utterly empty. And that the really difficult task of life is to build a world in these mediating institutions that Tocqueville talked about, of, of which church and family are perhaps the two most important. You anticipate my next question when you mentioned Tocqueville. You wrote, you wrote a fair amount about Tocqueville in this book, and it's fascinating mm -hmm. because he's such a perceptive observer of America and, and, and almost prophetic at times yeah. in his uh, understanding of where the weakness lies in the American character. And um, I'm quote you again from this book, a reference to Tocqueville saying that we risk becoming uh, greater than kings and less than men. And you say a liberal politics of competence is not possible if citizens are at once greater than kings and less than men. Yeah. Your discussion of what you call the liberal politics of competence struck me as uh, a realization of Tocqueville's hope for America, the liberal politics of competence, the, yeah. a society in which people know how to take care of things both by themselves and in community. And that's something that is now at risk. Yeah, um, to come back to that magnificent phrase in democracy in America about being greater than kings and less than men, what I say there and elsewhere is that what Tocqueville saw was that the democratic condition would produce bipolarity. And we, we make this a medical term, right? Linked to manic depression, tremendous highs and tremendous lows. And Tocqueville made this a sociological phenomenon, which is to say, you might need to take drugs as a supplement to, to address the problem, but it, it's not gonna cure the problem because Tocqueville's view was that democracy breaks the links between people. And he saw this in the aristocratic age. He saw the aristocratic age rather held people fast. It gave them roles and obligations and connections to people, which they couldn't just say, I think I'm not gonna perform anymore. We were bound by them and, and that, made for a rich life, it made for complicated life as well. But what happens in the democratic age is all those links slowly break down. In fact, we move, as I say to my students, we move from being bearers of roles 
to disembodied person. Now, Tocco thinks that would be a total mistake, but, but we move in that direction so that we see ourselves as disconnected. And I think the genius of Tocqueville was that he saw that, that while the democratic age delinks us, we must relink. And we relink through all those rich associations and, and institutions that Burke, the conservative, was defending when he wrote Reflections on the Revolution in France, is that you can't just overthrow your traditions and your institutions because they're embodied wisdom for all their problems. They are nevertheless the embodied wisdom we have to use in order to build a tomorrow. Tocqueville saw that. Uh, and he worried though that in the democratic age, we're gonna see those institutions as limiting. And the reason why we're frightened by that is if we're delinked, we sense ourselves to be isolated, alone and impotent enough anyway. And so any connection we think is gonna further limit us. And so we want to become spiritual rather than religious. We wanna be co-parents rather than fathers and mothers. And what Tocqueville thought was that's a cheap way out and that we have to, to, to speak theologically for a minute, we have to live incarnational lives. We have to live embodied lives. We may hover over the world because there's angels in us, and he says in a, in a lighthearted way, but, the, but, but we have to condescend into the, into the world. And the place where we do this is in the institutions in which we dwell. And he put all of his hope on that. And if we're unable to do that, if we want to be greater than kings and less than men, cosmopolitan man and selfie man, there's no hope whatsoever. Tocqueville talks about self-interest rightly understood, and there's a problem with the understanding here, isn't there? This... Yeah, so, so he understood, so just very briefly, following Rousseau, he agrees that the ancient world was, was virtue and the modern world was self-interest, but he takes, takes it one step further, says, okay, fine, there's good forms of self-interest and bad forms of self-interest, and the good form is that form that's formed in and through relations with others, with your family. So, you know, you think you're a so-called self-interested actor, but if you live in a bounded community, be it a church or a family or a neighborhood, you're going to be formed in and through your relations with others. And so there's a tempering mechanism in all these mediated institutions. So fine, while he would love to go back to virtue for long complicated reasons, he thinks we can't, but let's at least build a world together. And his worry was that if these mediating institutions fall apart, we're not even gonna know that there's this thing called self-interest rightly understood. We're gonna be right. lonely, isolated souls incapable of forming any association. Right. Now, late in your book, uh, you write about something which I suspect only came up as late in the process of your writing this book, namely the COVID lockdown and what that's doing to the mediating institutions. It's been devastating, hasn't it? Yeah, the, I, I wrote an independent piece and I don't re recall if it had, if it was part and partial of the, the epilogue that I wrote, which was called, I think, something like American Awakening or Identity Politics Wuhan Flu Edition, somewhat flippantly. But I said, one of the problems is that uh, in the democratic age, and Tocqueville saw this and Burke saw this, is, and I'll use Burke's language, which I didn't use in the, in the epilogue. You know, Burke distinguishes between what he calls the elegance of simplicity and the elegance of composition. And he says, the soul that really, the person that lives in the world and knows its complexities, knows that life has to be lived through the elegance of composition. Namely, you can't just push a button and say, here's the problem. 
and, uh, and we're going to solve our problem now. You understand that everything is interrelated, and there's no one button to push. There's prudential judgment that's necessary in order to make any decision. And what Burke saw and what Tocqueville saw was this new kind of soul, this democratic soul, would live in accordance with, with the elegance of simplicity. And that is, there's one cause, there's one problem, and everything else goes by the wayside because we've got this one problem solved. And the way we've handled the COVID pandemic has been through the elegance of simplicity. We said, here's the one thing we're going to do and everything else is gonna fall by the wayside. Jobs, students, mental health, suicide rates, opioid crisis, uh, none of that matters. The only thing we're gonna count, literally, and this is exactly how this works, is deaths from COVID. We're not gonna look into the, the, the murky details or the swampy details of the, of the CDC reports and find out how many people are dying from other causes as a consequence of us focusing single-mindedly on the COVID. So, so we're solving this in a very, very bad way. And, and what we fail to understand is that the world is far more complicated. There are no single answers. We can't separate the pure from the damned, which is another part of this elegance of simplicity uh, frame of mind. And so how we responded to COVID is perfectly in keeping with everything I wrote in American Identity or in American Awakening. Frighteningly so. And part of the problem there isn't, it seems to me that there's this overwhelming fear of death by this particular disease uh, to the point where it seems to blot out the recognition that we are all going to die. I mean, we, yeah. we don't have, we have a right to life, but we don't have a right not to die of natural causes and disease is a natural cause. Yeah. There's, uh, there's a lack of the Christian understanding here too, I think, that we aren't destined uh, simply to live on this life, that there are other things that we should be worried about. And the way I, I, yes, that's exactly right. The way I wrestled with this in the book, I said, imagine there's this virus called Adam 69, by which I meant, you know, <laughs> Adam's transgression, we fall into death, we live about 69 years. You know, imagine if we decided we were going to stop all life or stop living because of this terminal disease called Adam 69. Well, we have this terminal disease called Adam 69. And I'm hardly uh, countenancing recklessness because you know, we know, and we have known for a long time that there are, you know, the elderly and people with other sorts of conditions are, are, are at risk. And so let us do what we can to care for the people who are at risk. But to believe that, that death itself can be warded off, that is to say, that, that even though one in maybe 3,000 people under the age of 60 will die from COVID, that is too much death. This is a kind of craziness. And I've asked my administrators and, and at Georgetown and other places, so what would be the threshold of acceptable death? And because they can't give an answer, the, the effective answer is zero, which means if one person is going to die from COVID, they're not going to open up the university. So let's wait and see how this works out. We, we have to live with death. Uh, you know, Rousseau, not a great fan of Christianity, nevertheless said something very wise. How can I teach my student the art of living if they're afraid of dying? And you know, if that's the case, if you're fearful of death, you're, you're not gonna do very much in the world. And we're called to do things in the world, notwithstanding this terminal affliction, affliction that we have called the you know, Adam 69 virus, to use my own analogy. Uh, but you know, we're frightened to death of death. Yes, and we're frightened to death of death because of the 
loss of an active sense of the Christian understanding, isn't it? Because yeah. it, yeah. which brings us back to uh, where we began this conversation that the revival of politics seems to be, uh, it, it will require a revival of the active Christianity, the active understanding of Christianity. Yes, Tocqueville, in the author's introduction to democracy in America, he says, deeper than law is mores and deeper than mores is religion, by which he meant, and he says this elsewhere, that religion is the foundation on which everything is built, politics included. And so the, the American regime can't work without Christianity being intact, you know, which is not to say that America is a Christian nation, but it is to say that it is a nation largely of Christians. And you have to have many of the habits of the Christian mind intact in order for the Republic that we set up to work well. And as those habits disappear and as that self-understanding disappears, then the regime appears to be incoherent. And when it appears to be incoherent, we will have tyrants coming along and saying, I have a better plan. It, it's a frightening prospect, but I have to say that I was uh, heartened by your book because it's a very acute analysis of the problem. And I hope that it's widely read. And I thank you for being with us today for a glimpse at the book. I recommend again to anyone who's listening to this, uh, American Awakening, Identity Politics and, the other and Other Afflictions of Our Time by Joshua Mitchell. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Phil. It's a delight to talk with you.